This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us from Toronto is Doug Hoyes. Uh, He's the co-founder of Hoyes Michaelos & Associates, one of Canada's largest personal insolvency firms. He's got over 30 years in the business as a chartered accountant and licensed insolvency trustee. He's so great to talk to and interview because he's so knowledgeable and communicates so well. How did I do, Doug? That was excellent. Just the way I wrote it, Elaine. Thanks very much. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, The topic for this segment is, um, are not-for-profit credit counselors really just collection agents? And um, I know I can just speak from experience, and then I'll let you guys go. Uh, I was shocked. Mm -hmm. I was shocked at what I've learned uh, over the time that I've spent with Blair doing this show, Doug. So let's get right started um, at the beginning and define some of these terms. Yeah, so I'm so thrilled, Elaine, to have have Doug here to be talking about this topic, because I think it's something that folks just don't know. We're very much, you know, we believe a lot of the branding and advertising that we see. And I think on today's show, we want to kind of delve below that. When you see a not-for-profit credit counselor, what are you actually getting? Um, and I think we'll, we'll correct some misconceptions as well. Um, so, Doug, I wonder if we can just ask you first, you know, let's define the term. What do we mean when we talk about a not-for-profit credit counselor? Well, I mean, a credit counselor is someone gives, who gives advice about credit, I guess, a counselor. And not-for-profit means at the end of the day, the agency isn't turning a profit. I mean, it's, it, that's, that's all it means. And really, and what I hear is they're kind of doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Well, and and uh, I'm not going to paint anyone with a broad brush here because I have worked with many not-for-profit credit counselors over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Yeah. And most of them are fantastic people. Lovely. And it, it, it has been great in my career to be able to, you know, someone comes into my office and what they really need is some help with budgeting, with, uh, you know, how to save money, uh, you know, very tangible, practical things. And I'm happy to give that advice, but my area of expertise is more on the legal side with consumer proposals, bankruptcy law, all that kind of stuff. And so I am more than happy to refer them to someone who is much more expert than I in that, you know, those basic money management types of things. So I'm actually a very big supporter of not-for-profit credit counseling, provided that's what they're doing. They're meeting with someone in person and giving them practical advice. So I'm a big believer in that. Now, I mean, I think what, what you guys are getting at with your question to me is, okay, well, isn't that what they do? And the answer is every single one of us has to make a living. Mm-hmm. Okay. I do not work for free. My company, Hoys Michaelis, is a corporation. It's a for-profit business. I'm pretty sure Sands and Associates is also a profit-making enterprise. That's There's correct. nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm very open and upfront with my clients. Yes, this is a business you've come into. My fees, what I get paid when I do a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, are regulated by the federal government. So I can't just decide what I'm going to charge you. It is set by the government. I get a certain percentage of what is in the pot. That's how it works. Every licensed insolvency trustee gets paid exactly the same for the exact same file. 
So let me get that out of the way first. I'm not saying here I'm some, you know, not-for-profit guy myself. No, I'm a business. I, I make no bones about that. How then do I get paid? Well, when you do a proposal, I'm getting a percentage of what's being paid out to the creditors. How does a credit counselor get paid when you go in there and talk to them about budgeting? Well, they might charge you a, a, a fee, you know, a certain amount per hour, or perhaps they're getting funding from, you know, the United Way or other, you know, charitable donations. Fantastic. That's great. But that's and, and not Doug, where do you, the... Do you, see yep, that mo- do you see that model very often? Because the way we're describing things, I don't think anybody could be opposed to, you know, a community-based organization um, that provides, you know, good counseling at little to no charge. But I don't see that model very often, definitely not in well, Vancouver. That's the problem. And that's the problem. That Unfortunately, that's a very hard model to, to make successful because as a not-for-profit credit counseling agency, you have to pay the rent, you have to pay your staff. How can you do that if the people you're helping don't have any money? So what they have done over you know the years is they have also done other things to generate cash flow, one of them being debt management plans. And so in a debt management plan, they have an arrangement with each of the big banks and credit card companies that if you agree to pay back your debts in full, the big bank will agree to give you a break on the interest, and in return, the credit counseling agency is paid a fee for doing that. So um, they've always called it a fair share contribution or something like that, and often it's in the range of you know 15 to 20% of the money that goes back to the big bank. So that's how they generate a lot of their funding. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that. You, you're doing a job, you should get paid for it. Um, I think it's key, though, that when you go to a credit counselor, you understand specifically what they're doing. And you should also understand specifically what a licensed insolvency trustee is doing. Who is paying you? How do you get paid? What's your incentive for, for doing what you're doing? And, I mean, you should ask that of every professional you're dealing with. Uh, how, am I, how am I getting paid? Oh, I bought these mutual funds and I didn't have to pay my advisor anything. Yeah, that's because the fees are buried there. And I think that's my main point. The fees are often not completely visible, and as a result, you don't know who you're paying, what you're paying for, and therefore whose side they're on when you're uh, engaging that professional. Now, as a credit counselor, uh, is it uh, uh, is it on them to tell you when you ask that question how they are being funded? Yes, but it's on you to ask the question. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I like coming on your show, because we can put these questions in people's mind. I have no problem at all when someone sits in my desk and says, sits at my desk and says, hey, how are you getting paid? What's in it for you? Right. I'm, I'm more than happy to answer that question. My concern is that some of these big agencies have made it sound like, well, we're not for profit, you know, we're, we're here for the good of humanity. Oh, by the way, all of our funding comes from the banks or a vast majority of our funding comes from the banks. Okay, well, if the vast majority of your funding comes from the banks, then doesn't that mean you are somewhat beholden to what the banks want you to do? Absolutely. So if, if I'm a... <laughs> yeah. Somewhat. Okay, you know, I'm, I'm couching my words here. I don't want you getting sued You're here, You're being Blair. very diplomatic. Yeah, and, and so if I'm going to run a seminar about how to use credit cards, am I going to stand up there and say to people, you know what, you shouldn't use them? because the interest rate is really high and they're maybe not a great deal for borrowing? Well, no, because my funding is coming from a big bank. I may be a little reluctant to say that. Sure. So I think you have to know how someone is getting paid. Now, people are going to listen to this and say, yeah, okay, Doug Royce, you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth because it's the bank who's paying you too. 
So, uh, you know, you're, you're criticizing someone but doing the same thing yourself. Well, no. When you no. file a consumer proposal, you're the one writing the checks to me, and I'm distributing that money. In a not-for-profit credit counseling agency that's doing a debt management plan, the bank is actually contributing back to them. It is a, it is a different relationship. And again, our fees are set by the government, so there is no bias here. I'm not the one who's determining what I'm getting paid. Okay. And, and Doug, we wanted to talk about how credit counselors might be akin to collection agents. And so let's spend a minute, you know, what's a collection agent? You know, for my simple mind, and obviously being in the industry here, you know, a bank hires a collection agency to get the money back from you to collect on the debt. So what, yeah, what would be your it's definition? Someone who, it's someone who collects debt on behalf of someone else. Mm-hmm. And so simple as that. what's the similarity there between a credit counselor and a collection agent? Well, I mean, in Ontario, and I believe it's the same in British Columbia, a someone doing a debt management plan has to be registered under the Collection Agencies Act or whatever it's called in, in each individual prov- uh, province. So legally, they are collecting debts. They are debt collectors. Now, they're not the same as a collection agency. I mean, let, let's not you know, overstate the case that, uh, you know, the, the guy who's collecting that old cell phone bill and is harassing you 15 times a day and is threatening to garnish your wages, that's not the same as a not-for-profit credit counselor. But they are collecting the money and then forwarding it on to the banks. As opposed to in a consumer proposal where we are making a settlement with the banks and remitting to them the net amount. So in a debt management plan, you're paying back 100 cents on the dollar. There's no negotiating to be done, whereas in a consumer proposal, it's in most cases much less than 100 cents on the dollar. So I think that's where the the distinction lies. And Doug, you mentioned some of the different provincial legislations, and I have to tell you, BC is completely, from my perspective, asleep at the switch here, um, because I was just just flabbergasted when I saw Ontario's consumer protection or consumer registries there, which say, you know, if you want to see if someone's a collection agency, you basically put in the name, there's a registry, and you can figure it out. Um, And any credit counseling firm that you see, even BC-based organizations that operate in Ontario, they're forced to register as collection agents in Ontario. So that was where I first got the thought about this. I'm like, wow, if they're registered as collection agents, isn't that what they're doing. The province of BC has no such requirement. So if you try to figure out who are the collection agents in BC, you, you won't find that information easily accessible. So the number of clients that I sit down with when I say, you know, um, the advertising that you've seen for not-for-profit credit counselors, just be a little bit careful because of the funding model and the fact that other provinces have caused them to register just based on the conduct of, of what they're doing. So I think it's customers yeah. having their eyes wide open. I totally, totally agree. And again, you hit the nail on the head here, the funding model. The problem is I think credit counselors perform a very valuable function, and I would love to go back to to the days where they were in person, you could actually meet with them face-to-face, they could help you with your budget, give you all this advice, but the problem is they can't do it because no one's paying for it, and so they have to resort to taking money from the banks that perhaps they would otherwise not like to do. So I would like to see changes at the federal level where we find a way to fund not-for-profit credit counselors who aren't, you know, collecting for the banks, but who are helping individual people. That's what I would like to see. Um, And I think that would be better for everyone. It would certainly be better for the credit counseling agencies, because I think that's what they want to do. They should specialize in education and helping people. But the problem is it costs money to do that. So, I mean, that would be a whole nother show on, on how that could possibly happen. But I think there are ways that funding could be provided to not-for-profit credit counseling agencies to do credit counseling as opposed to simply being debt collectors. The one thing that I was going to, I wanted to ask is 
are there more of each today than there were 10 years ago? I mean, because you are two guys who are in the business who see what's going on on a regular basis. What do you think? What what I see, if I'm understanding your question correctly, is in the old days, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there were a ton of small, locally-based credit counseling agencies. So in every small town in Ontario, in every large town and city, there was a not-for-profit credit counseling agency. I knew the people there. I could send people there for, for counseling. Today, most of those agencies have been absorbed into the three or four big agencies that are almost national in scope. So if you want to talk to a credit counselor, it's much more likely you're going to be talking to someone over the phone, and their primary goal is to help you, but also to fund their operations with a debt management plan. And again, I'm painting everyone with the same brush here. There are still lots of credit counselors who will meet with you in person and provide good advice, but they are becoming much larger in scope. And uh, there's a lot more stuff being done over the phone as opposed to face-to-face because that's the only cost-effective way to do it. Excellent. We've been talking with Doug Hoyes, who's the co-founder of Hoyes Michaelos and Associates uh, in Toronto. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. For information on any of the services that uh, uh, Sands and Associates looks after, check out their website, sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We talk about debt all the time on this show. That really is the focus for us. And we talk about all the different uh, ways of dealing with it. But is there a single place that you can start to Mm -hmm. think about it or before I come in to see uh, somebody, you or someone in in the offices, uh, is there a place that I can start or what do you tell people or what would you like people to do? So these are good questions, Elena. And I think for today, let's talk about, you know, what are the barriers that people feel that stop them from reaching out to help? You know, from from me, I can say, yeah, I can help you once you've done these things. Um, But typically someone says, well, before I even call the trustee, you know, I don't know, I've got to do this first or that first. And sometimes they put these insurmountable barriers ahead of themselves. Let's talk about today. Here's a couple things that if someone thinks they've got a debt problem, they're not sure if they need a trustee's help, here's at least a couple things they can kind of sort out on their own to get ready to make that next call to get some help. Okay. Okay. So what's the first one? Well, number one, and this is not the sexiest thing in the world, but it's budgeting. And so many things in life come down to a budget. A budget's a story. A budget's a plan. A budget's an idea of how you're going to live your life. And if you don't have it, you know, many people say it's like driving your car just completely blind. You know, you're going to run into something, you're not going to see it coming, and there's going to be a catastrophic impact. So, you know, how do you keep a budget? Let's spend a couple minutes talking about All that. All right, I don't know. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. But kind of, like, it's one of those scary things. I go, oh, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And there's ways you can over-engineer this, and then you end up, you know, with something that's so complicated, it doesn't give you really any output. But, you know, you could have a budget on a single sheet of paper, which is what we normally do with our clients and a couple key components are all you need to get started. Okay. So, you know, first off, you need to tally up your take-home income. What so, comes in the door? Yeah, exactly. So if you're a standard salaried employee, okay, you get paid two, maybe three times in a month. If it's a three-pay month, you figure out what that is so you know what your income is. If you're self-employed, it's obviously a little bit
little bit more difficult, but maybe look at your last year's taxes and figure out an average amount per month. Um, but you've got to be careful when you're budgeting that, you know, things that might happen in the future, you know, hey, I think I'm going to get this tax refund this year because I always get it. Well, don't plan for that until you actually have it. It's, mm. it's a really critical thing not to spend money before you actually have it. Fair so enough. make sure when you're considering your income, it's chickens that have already hatched, so hmm. to speak, uh, not ones that, you know, may or may not hatch in the future. Okay. Uh, so once you've done, you've done adding up all of your income, which should be relatively simple, you know, employment income, maybe some child benefits support and things like that, list out your fixed costs. So by fixed costs, I mean things that you have no flexibility in. So, you know, quite often this is your rent, you know, as much as you'd love to go negotiate with your landlord at 0.1% vacancy or whatever it is, that's probably going to be a short conversation. Right. So there are certain costs that you just know you're not going to be able to reduce no matter what. You know, maybe it's childcare costs, you know, MSP, which goes away this year, but as of now, that's a fixed cost. Nothing you can do about that. Yeah. So once you've listed out your fixed cost, your next step is to track your spending. And this is where most people really break down because it can get a bit tough to keep track of everything in this modern world, every transaction that we make. But a couple easy ways to do it is just for a solid month, get a receipt for everything every coffee, every transit ticket, everything like that, get a receipt, stick it in a pocket, and then nightly or weekly, just sit down, add up the receipts that you've got. That can be an easy way to do it. How scary is that for some people? It can be scary because it's actually putting into, you know, black and white, what they think they're doing, but actually it's quite different what's actually happening. Yeah. Right? So a lot of people, they figure out, oh my God, I had no idea I was spending this much, you know, coffee here or there. It actually does add up at the end of the day. Yeah. Especially if if you're one of those regular people every morning on your way, you do that. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so tracking my spending. Yep. Now, a really important thing here is to put it in writing. So this mm-hmm. idea that, okay, I've got this budget in my head, you know, my income is 2200 my rent's 1400 so I know where I'm going to spend the rest of the money here. Until you write it down, put it in black and white, you've just got the idea of a budget. You don't actually have a budget. Fair so enough. So you really need to have something written down. And then what's hugely important is at the end of the month, you actually crunch the numbers and you look at, okay, well, did I stay within budget this month? If I overran, where did I overrun? Run. It's something that's going to recur. Is it a decision that I made that I should have made a different decision, or is it something completely out of my control? And if so, you know, how can I prepare for that next time? Do I even consider my credit card? debt and stuff like that oh, when yeah. I'm doing my budget? Every dollar in and out. So one of your budget items for the outflow would be credit card payments. Okay. Yeah. And if it's the case that, you know, I can afford everything, but when I get to my credit card payments, there's no money left over, well, then that tends to point out that, okay, on a month-to-month basis, if you had no debt, you'd actually be living within a budget, but it's this debt hangover of things that are probably providing you no benefit anymore, but are still a drag on your finances, that points out that's the problem that you have to solve. How often should a person check their budget? I'd say every month. Every month. Yeah, at Not least. more than that? Well, a lot of people will do every two weeks or so, sometimes with their paycheck, you know, they'll update their income at that time and their expenses. I'm a fan of, you know, do it once a month, check in, get some, you know, big directional type of indications. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what's another area of the, the this process that people get stuck? Taxes. Oh. The tax man. So <laughs> oddly enough, taxes come every year, but not, we're not always prepared for it. And I know because there are people in my life, some people just have a psychological block for taxes. No matter if it's simple, they've got one T4, they're never going to owe the government money. Their hands start to shake when I start saying, well, yo, you could do this yourself. Fill out the forms, do it online. Some people just get really scared about any dealings with the government. And I get it. They've got all the power and we've got none. But this is one of these hoops that unfortunately it's not going away. And every year, every Canadian has to file an income tax return. And it's and there's so many ways of doing it too these days, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 
not just me sitting down and doing it if I don't want to. No, like what I do with my family, you know, we go to Costco, we buy the tax software for 30 bucks, you do eight returns for that, you know. Okay. A lot of the time you can go to, you know, H&R Block or wherever, you know, big tax tax places, you might pay 50 to $80 for a return, but at least it's done. Uh, but a lot of ways to do it, if you're low income, you can generally do it online even for free. But the things that you miss out on if you don't file taxes are really important to know. So, you know, things like GST, HST credits. So mm-hmm. if you're low income four times a year, the government's sending you a check. And if you don't file your taxes, you're not getting that check. And that could enough. be, you know, 100 to $200 for some people. Uh, Canada Child Benefit, which is just massive. You know, in some cases, that can be over $1,000 for a family. If they don't file their taxes or file them late, they can be cut off from that benefit. Oh, that's so really it's incredibly important. important yeah. Uh, RRSP contributions, when you file your taxes, you create contribution rooms. So you can put money away for your RRSPs for savings for retirement later in life. If you don't file, you're not creating that room and you can't put the same money right. in. Right. And CRA will tell you exactly how much you can spend. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, things like if you're trying to secure financing, whether it's a car, a house, or even a credit card, some things like that, you often have to prove your income by showing your tax assessment. So it allows you to substantiate when you tell someone, here's the money that I made. And by the way, here's what the government has validated that, yes, I'm up to date with all my taxes and my payments. Um, I know I have a bunch of clients who are in the film industry. And a few years ago, there was a big change where all the independent contractors, they could not get hired unless they would show their tax assessment to the people hiring them. Oh, that's interesting. And that forced them all to be complete. Before then, there was a lot of non-compliance because being self-employed, it's a little more difficult to stay up. Interesting. Why the employer would care that much, I wonder. Well, I think they were thinking, if we don't get these people on board, eventually CRA is going to come to us and say, Ah. well, these are actually your employees and maybe you should have been remitting taxes. So um, I think it was, let's regulate ourselves before the government tries to do so. But I think, yeah, more and more, I would expect self-employed people to have to really show tax assessments, show that they're up to date, perhaps even before taking on jobs, you'd want to know that your contractor is not a half a million dollars in debt to CRA or hasn't filed for 10 years, for example. No, fair enough. Is there sort of a a theory uh, of why people delay filing their tax returns? You know, a lot of it is they just think they owe money and it's better not to file. (laughs) Okay. And I can understand that, but the government generally knows more than you do. um, And generally, they're going to know if you owe money. So if you're self-employed, if you go enough years without filing taxes, they're just going to arbitrarily assess you. They're going to say all of your bank deposits were revenue and you had no business expenses. And then you're going to have a way worse outcome than if you had actually filed that return. Um, So, you know, definitely if you're a self-employed person, don't delay filing taxes. And if you're an individual and you're delaying because you owe money, CRA already knows that. They've got your T4s. They know all this stuff. Um, So there's really no benefit for you delaying filing. All you're doing is essentially getting put into a non-compliant bucket of taxpayers, which generally gets collected a little bit more aggressively than the compliant bunch. Fair enough. So yeah, it's best to take action and not not just think that nobody knows what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Because they do. If you want more information, go to Sands and Associates. You can go to their website. They've got some great questions and answers, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030 for that consultation, as well as to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're going to talk about credit card debt and how to pay it off. And there are some specific ways to do that. Um, But, gee, you know, it feels like a big, giant thing Mm -hmm. to have to 
take on because yeah. it, it doesn't seem like anybody's willing to give breaks on these things. Well, and it's just so easy, Elaine, just to sit into the cycle, slip into the cycle of just pay the minimum each month. No one ever calls you for a delinquent payment. Because it actually you know, tells you on the yeah, statement. Yeah, this you is know, all you need to do this. to tick the box, right? And then you're compliant and your credit rating is usually okay yes. and all that good stuff. But I've had clients tell me, it, you know, it feels like you're pushing a boulder up the hill every month and it just com- tumbles down against you every month after because the interest just piles on again. So it can feel hopeless if all you're doing is just making minimum payments. Absolutely, because they do tell you too. I mean, that's sort of a new thing, right? Yeah. That the credit card company will tell you how long it will take if you just pay the minimum. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. How long it will take to pay off. And just that debt, that yeah. current statement, not the... Uh, not if you continue to use yeah, your card. Yeah, not with any new purchases or right. things like that. So, you know, let, let's go through a couple examples yeah. there just to, to give the listeners a bit of an illustration of, you know, how severe it can be to be in some credit card debt and just be making the minimums. So, you know, let's say it's a $5,000 balance. So it's something probably a lot of folks could relate to, you know, maybe things got out of hand for a few months, there was a vacation overrun or something like that. But let's say it's a $5,000 debt and it's on a store credit card. And this is something you wouldn't want to do because, you know, the big retailer credit cards are typically the highest interest rates, you know, at 29. 9% interest rate. If you were just paying the minimum payments on $5,000, Elaine, it would take you 50 years and four months to get out of that debt. That's crazy. 50 years to clear $5,000. Oh. And you know how much you would have paid back by the end of it? I can't imagine. Twenty-three, almost $24,000. Oh, so you paid the man. debt four or five times over. You preserved great credit, but at what expense? That $5,000 50 years later, you won't even remember anything about what you had spent that on. And that's only on that one card. And that's, that's right. if you never use it again ever until yeah. in until the end of time. And someone might be saying, okay, well, who's going to put, you know, that much money on a store credit card? Well, clearly some people, because I see them, but that's well, not your best practice, right? No, it's so, not. But, yeah. uh, but you know, furniture, yeah. if you're buying furniture, sometimes mm-hmm. you do that at a major retail, uh, like a department store. Oh, yeah. Those can right? be upwards of 29, 30% easy. Yeah. yeah. And they're, you know, big purchases. Yeah. Unless you've got the cash on hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy. So let, let's keep it that 5000 and let's yes. say, okay, you know, it's a typical credit card, which is about 18.9% interest, so significantly right. better. Um, you're making your minimum payments. How long do you think it's going to take? It's better than 50 years for sure. Is it? 19 years and nine months. So, (laughs) you know, still, if you were late in your working life, you're ready to retire and you're getting this thing paid off. Um, But yeah, it's it's definitely, it's again, the 20-year plan for 5,000 bucks, even at a reasonable standard credit card interest rate. Um, You know, final example here, and then we'll move on is let's say you've got a low rate interest card, except people come in and say, oh yeah, this card is great. You know, it's cheaper than the other card. So I put things on it. I carry a balance, but I know I'm not getting that far behind. So a lot of low rate cards might be, you know, 11.9% interest, same 5,000 bucks. 15 years. 15 years. So wow. you're still in this cycle for quite a long time. Yeah, very So long. what I want folks to take away from this is making your minimum payments is not a solution that will ever get you out of debt. It's just a means for you to preserve great credit and pad the bank's bottom line. So what's the first thing you should do if you've got big credit card debt? How do you deal with it? Yeah, so today's segment, I wanted to talk about things people can do that don't necessarily include Sands and Associates, but things anybody could do. So, you know, the first one is just try to negotiate. You know, a lot of people think that just because you got this card and there's a certain certain rate that's in all the advertisements, that's the best that you can do. It's often not the best that you can do. Really? They will ch- They will lower it? Yeah. And now it depends on your situation. If you've been delinquent for the last six months and they're calling you all over the place, no chance on that. If you've never missed a payment and you're telling them, you know what, this interest rate's too high. I'm considering taking my business elsewhere for a better deal. Generally, you'll have a positive conversation and you might end up with some interest rate reduction. Yeah. There's literally no downside to doing this other than your time and perhaps a little bit of embarrassment. We don't like to ask 
for things in, in life, but this is one of the times where if you don't ask, you'll never get it. Right. So I would say call your bank, call your whatever the credit card company is, and just explain that, yeah, I feel like this interest rate is too high. I would like to know what my options are to lower it. Okay. Now, what are the? Uh, there's one more. There's a two more things, or one more thing that you could do as well. When you say that there, w- if one credit card has a lower interest rate than the other, mm-hmm. you may want to move the money around or the debt around. Yeah. So that can be something to consider too. If you've got a few different cards and one is significantly lower and there's some room on there, you can do a balance transfer now. Previously, you know, five, 10 years ago, balance transfers cost you nothing in fees. It was pretty straightforward. Now you've got to be careful. I've seen a lot of card issuers, whatever balance you transfer over, they often take a 1% fee, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but, oh. you know, it's just cash right off the top just to move the money around. So again, make sure that it's going to pay off in the long term if there are some short-term fees if you move money to a lower interest rate card. Okay, so then what? Then what do you do? Well, so say that you've moved things around as much as you can and your yes. debts are where they are. Um, then you've got to have a bit of a strategy of how are you going to pay these debts down. So it's assuming the situation is not so severe that you need the help of a trustee, but you might need just some help to organize things. So one approach that we like to do um, is to pay the highest interest cards first. So the steps you go through here is you'd sit down, you'd list all of your credit cards by interest rate with the highest rates at the top. So obviously, you know, the department store, cor- store cards typically would be up there. Sure. You look at your monthly budget and you'd figure out how much can you afford to pay beyond the minimum payments. So the minimum payments, that's just going to be a a go-to. You've got to cover that each month or else you're going to be delinquent and we're assuming that you're going to try to pay these all off over time. Okay. But figure out, can I devote an extra $200, $300, $100, whatever it is above and beyond the minimums, figure out what that what that extra pot of money looks like. And then every month, take that extra money and apply it to the highest interest rate card only. So you pay the minimums on all of them, but the one that you're really trying to knock down is the highest interest rate cost. That makes sense. And once that one's gone, you move on to the second one, so on and so forth. And you celebrate every time that you pay a card off. You know, whether you go out, you go for a nice walk, you get yourself a coffee, you know, go out and max the cards out. Yeah, don't buy anything big. (laughs) Yeah, but the best things in life don't cost money, so treat yourself to those. Fair enough, fair Mm -hmm. enough. So what about consulting? Consolidating the debt um, as a strategy. Do you do a line of credit or get that consolidation? Yeah, that's what a lot of people really rush to first is, okay, we've got all these debts and a bunch of different cards. Uh, Let's try to simplify our life. Let's put everything together. And ideally, let's get a lower interest rate. And that can really work well for certain people if you can qualify for it. So Mm. the challenge is, you know, for a bank to do a consolidation loan, they're essentially going and paying off all of your other debts, paying them off in full, and then expecting you to keep them whole at the end of the day and pay the bank off in full. Right. Now, they're willing to take that risk if you've got something to pledge, if you've got assets, if you've got a house that has a lot of equity, if you've got a bunch of money in the bank. It's quite often it's the people that don't need the bank's help are the people that the bank wants to help the most. Right. Um, but if you're able to qualify for a consolidation loan, the really key important thing is to take those old credit cards and, you know, whether you freeze them, you chop them up, you do something, it's to stop using them. Because I've seen again and again, people come into me, they had the consolidation loan two years ago, they thought they were going to pay everything down. And now they come in to see me, the consolidation loan hasn't moved that much because life intervened. And you know what, the credit cards are back where they were before the consolidation loan, because it was just too tempting to use all this available credit. Or sometimes it's not even it's, it's circumstances. Mm-hmm. And as you say, life happened, like, yeah. and we know that one small thing can really cause big financial 
financial problems for people. Somebody yeah. gets sick, somebody, you know, whatever. There's a, a hundred different things that can oh, happen. Oh, you're exactly right, Elena. And thank you for making that point, too. Yeah. So I say it's too tempting. It's not that it's that. but It it's, can it's, be, for it sure. It can be, but it, it's often the case that, you know, something, a shock to the system happened. But sometimes it's, you know, it's a longer term. It's a budgetary leak. Every month there's a few hundred dollars of overspending that just gets put on credit. And until you address that, um, you're consistently going to have, have a bit of trouble. Okay, so consolidation loan, uh, I'm not going to get. I'm not going to get that. What do I do then? Yeah, so if those other options aren't working for you, so you've tried to lower the interest rate by negotiating, you've tried to move balances around at the lowest possible interest rate, you've tried to consolidate and maybe you've been turned down or you've done it and the cards are back where they were, that's when you probably need to reach out to someone like a licensed insolvency trustee to consider a consumer proposal. And anyone that listens to our show on a long-term basis, they'll know exactly what a consumer proposal is. Sure. But in a nutshell, a consumer proposal is going to consolidate all the debt, set the interest down to zero, so not 20, not 10, not 15, 0%, and give you the time that you need to repay that reduced balance. So basically, reduce the debts to what you can afford, eliminate the interest, and give you a payment plan for the reduced balance. So, um, in... Okay, so that makes sense, and and that and that debt isn't just retail credit card stuff too. Mm-hmm. That's everything. That's yeah. as you mentioned, student loans and government stuff. Yeah. Um, what are there any sort of problems that people can run into trying to pay off their credit card debt? Yeah, there, there's a few of them, Elaine. You know, the first one is just what we talked about at the beginning. It's just sure. the idea of just getting caught in the cycle of only making the minimum payments and not seeing the debt go down. Right. So that can just be depressing over time. And, you know, increasingly these minimum payments, you know, if you're not using this card and you're paying it off, you tend to use another card and that one needs another minimum payment. So they tend to snowball over time. See, and that's the point that I would think that to talk to somebody mm-hmm. makes the best sense at that point. Because yeah. obviously there's something that's not quite I want to say out of whack, but I uh, but that's not the right term. But it, there's an imbalance. Yeah. That's fair. And there could be a number of factors forward. It might have nothing to do with the, the individual situation or judgments that they've made. Something just could have happened, but there's an imbalance with their ability to pay off these debts and have a financially successful future and the plan that they're going on now, which is the 50 or 100 year payment plan being stuck in the minimum payment trap. Now, how often do you find that people go into debt to pay off their debt? Very often. And, yeah. and that could be um, uh, from a number of different sources. Yeah. And, and so often, Elaine, it's because that's the easiest thing to do. Sure. So if someone's calling you every month, they're coming through the phone saying you're a horrible person, they're a collection <laughs> agent that needs to be paid, and you know that you can make this go away if you get a cash advance from another card or move a balance over for here or there, you know, why wouldn't you do that to get this person off of your back? Yeah, or if somebody wants to help you, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we've got great people in our in our lives, yeah. and they say, "Well, listen, uh, why don't I loan you the money?" Yeah, and we know that that. Well, quite often, if you do that, you don't deal with the underlying problem. So that's what we really like to do at Sands and Associates is to really sit down and, and figure out, well, what's causing the debt problem? Is it just a one-time thing that happened or is there an imbalance on a monthly basis? We need to really work with you on your budget. But if you don't deal with the underlying problem, you just address the symptom, um, it is going to recur again. Yeah. And what about using, if not, well, I guess credit and debt are really the same thing at that mm-hmm. point if you're trying to pay something off. Yeah, that's the almost the number one warning 
warning sign and definitely a number of years ago before you know all this minimum payments became more well known you knew someone was going to have a problem if every month they're using credit to pay credit or using debt to pay debt but essentially you know taking money from one card to pay another and then you clear off some some room there and then you move it to the other card um, you know sometimes it means taking a payday loan this month just to pay off your minimum payments for the next month but essentially making your obligations your payments that you have to make making them with borrowed money that's one of the number one warning signs that someone's going to have some financial challenges and I just want to add you know my experience of you is that you know that people for the for like 99% of folks are just trying to do the best they can yeah so if you're feeling overwhelmed by credit card or other debts Go to Sands and Associates, meet with Blair, meet with the, the staff at the locations. What, there's 16 offices 17 now? 17 now, 17 yes. in British Columbia. Uh, a licensed insolvency trustee. Get that professional help, that professional debt advice, because uh, these people know what they're talking about. Or if you want to do a little bit more research first, Go to the website, sands-trustee.com. It's fabulous. It's just pages of really good questions and answers. Uh, And the website, again, is sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with uh, with us right now is Stuart Zuckerman. Uh, Stuart is uh, a UBC law grad, and his practice primarily in the area of family law and has been for the past almost 30 years. So in in addition to Stuart's litigation practice, he's also an accredited family law mediator, uh, participates in the collaborative divorce process. And Stuart, I'm pretty sure we could have an interview just on the collaborative uh, divorce process alone, but but we don't get that. We're uh, going to talk about, um, and this is interesting, if you're in the situation where you sense or can feel that your relationship or marriage depends depending on the on your situation is breaking down uh, the kinds of things that you need to pay attention to yeah so Stuart we, we were hoping um, you know when someone's thinking that their relationship is going to break down you know sometimes there's a lot of emotion and people tend to take action sometimes you know a little bit rashly and maybe not considering the broader impact so I wonder if you can share from your experience because I've definitely seen it in my experience I've seen both partners you know just start suddenly stop caring about finances and start to run up charges on credit cards and then you know we, we've got to deal with that as a trustee here but what have you seen in terms of pitfalls when a relationship is breaking down what are the things to really not do that's going to hurt you later on Sure. Well, for just the first thing that I would say is the thing to do if you sense your relationship is, is coming to an end or near an end would be to gather as much documentation as you can. That is, make photocopies or take pictures with your phone of, of uh, 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 bank card, bank statements, of uh, credit card bills, of uh, any financial piece of information, uh, the home title, any documents at home um, that would, uh, for financial disclosure purposes, because some people just don't disclose their finances uh, the way they should, and so getting that information off the top uh, will help uh, secure uh, a more comp- comprehensive solution or settlement at the end. But in terms of pitfalls, there's, there's a lot of pitfalls that, that, that people make. You know, a very common situation is uh, husband and wife get into a fight, let's call them Mary and John. Um, John get, Mary calls the police. Police come and remove John from the home, and a, and a, a peace bond is issued where John is not allowed to return to the home. Um, I can tell you, in 29 years of practice, I've seen the Johns in these situations. Very often, uh, will 
respond by calling BC Hydro and cutting off the hydro, wow. calling uh, uh, Fortis Gas, calling cutting off the gas, cutting off the cable and the internet to the home. They figure, I'm not allowed in the home, I'm not going to pay the bills anymore. And often they were the breadwinner in the home or the major income earner, and the, the spouse, Mary, may have a much lower income or no income um, and may have kids at home, and I've seen guys do that regardless. And I can tell you, when people, when if I have a woman come in to my office, and I've had this many times crying in the chair opposite me, saying my husband cut off the hydro and the cable, I smile and I say, he's given you the greatest gift you could ask for, because when I go to court next week and I tell a judge that John cut off the hydro and the, and the cable and the internet for the, when the wife and kids are at home, the judge is going to bend over backwards and say, Mr. Zuckerman, what can I do for you? What do you want me to order? And it's going to help me get higher support numbers and get, get orders that are going to be against the husband. So, so that's a big pitfall for people who, who make that mistake of cutting off hydro cable, cutting off bank accounts, taking money out of bank accounts and, and maybe depositing it into their mother's account or their sister's account because they think they're going to hide the money for division later. That's the worst thing you could do because when I cross-examine that person at a trial later about why they pulled the money out of their account and put it into their sister's name, the, the only answer is that they were trying to hide it from their wife. And now the judge will say this person lacks complete credibility on their financial disclosure and you might get an order where all of the disclosed assets go to one party because the judge believes that there are more value in hidden assets than there are in disclosed assets. And there's many cases where that has occurred. So, so it's very important to to not uh, hide assets, to not switch assets over to other. Uh, everything needs to be disclosed. Full and frank financial disclosure is the cornerstone of of family law. And we've had cases. There's a case called Kuna and Kuna where the court the court of appeal said that the the non disclosure of of uh, finances is the cancer um, on matrimonial litigation. And so the courts have a lot of power to cure that cancer, um, including giving everything that has been disclosed to the not to the to the innocent spouse. So it's a big mistake to hide those things. Okay, so let's let's do the flip side of that then. Mary and John are smart, intelligent, bright, caring, thoughtful people. Uh, the children are at home with one of them, and uh, and and yet they know that the marriage is breaking down or the relationship's breaking down. What are the steps to take in that situation? So so everybody, um, I mean, it's a difficult situation. Doesn't come out a winner because this is sad, regardless. But that that isn't heard in the process. Right. So, so the first thing, I mean, as, as a divorce lawyer, we're mandated under the Divorce Act to inform clients about the existence of marriage counselors and their services. So we do recommend people speak to a marriage counselor if they think they might be able to repair the relationship. But assuming that they've already gone past that and they can't repair the relationship, um, th- that's the time when it's, they should both be going out and talking to a lawyer, bringing to the lawyer all of the information about their finances, and trying to negotiate or get advice about negotiating a fair and reasonable uh, separation agreement rather than litigating. So instead of starting a divorce proceeding, you ask your lawyer, you say, look, I want to I want a divorce from I want a divorce and separate from my spouse, but I'd like to do it by way of an agreement. I want to stay out of court. And and then you give all the information to the lawyer, and then the lawyer is able to say, well this is what your rights and your entitlements are in terms of those assets. This is how the court would divide those assets. So let's write a letter to John um, and say, you know, dear John, here's what we propose for a settlement, a separation agreement. And if John then goes to his lawyer and gets advice and the lawyer says, yes, this is pretty much what's going to happen. This is the correct level of child support. This is the correct level of spousal support. We might negotiate the duration of spousal support or the quantum, the amount of spousal support, um, how long it's going to last, etc. Uh, and you put all the, you write all those things up in an agreement and, and a separation agreement. If you come, if a client comes to me and they 
and they know uh, after my first meeting exactly what they want to do in terms of a separation agreement, we can do that for as little as about uh, $3,500 from start to finish when we're not involved in extensive negotiations with the other party. When you're negotiating, that will add because we charge for the hours that are spent. So negotiating adds more cost to the to the bottom line. But but the, a basic separation agreement uh, prepared by a lawyer is about 3500 bucks. Uh, an uncontested divorce, if you just wanted a divorce order that, that doesn't deal with any assets or children, just says well, the parties are divorced, uh, that can be done for as little as $1,500. Mm-hmm. On the other end of the scale, if you went to court... I was going to ask you that. These sound like bargains compared to, you know, an average rate in a court, right? <laughs> yes, I, I, I would say, you know, in my experience, most uh, trials last at least five days uh, in Supreme Court. And when you're in court, you only really get four hours and 15 minutes in front of the judge um, every day because there's breaks when you're in court. So it's not a lot of time in five days. But in five days, you could do a typical divorce case. And that that would cost with a senior lawyer probably anywhere from eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, with a junior wow. lawyer somewhere from forty to sixty thousand dollars to prepare for and conduct those five days of trial. So, for a one-week trial, you you could be in the six figures, and I I know it's real because I've seen it. I've seen uh, both sides, husbands and wives, comes in with you know big legal bills that essentially they they've you know dissipated a bunch of family assets, um, you know, just by fighting and not you know trying to make an agreement early on. There may be other factors there, but yeah, the costs really do escalate quickly. The, the, the last five-day trial I did was eight, my bill was eighty-nine thousand dollars. So, I'm, and I heard that the opposing lawyer's bill was something like one hundred and twenty thousand. So, it is you know a, tr- a one-week trial is easily close to six figures with, with a senior lawyer I mean I'm a lawyer with 29 years experience I have eight lawyers at my firm that are junior to me so you know if you've hired one of our first year or fifth year lawyers who's directed by me you're, you're, it's a much lower expense less than half of the cost for, for a senior lawyer Stuart have you got and, and we're just sort of we've got about a minute and a half or so to go I was curious about the percentage is there a clear percentage in your mind of, of what uh, the choice people are making now like uh, a trial version versus uh, figuring out uh, more collaboratively to, yeah. yeah. Everybody is, if you have a good lawyer, the lawyer will explain well in advance what the costs of a trial are, and when you factor in those costs of a trial, that helps in the settlement, because, you know, even if you're getting, for example, if someone made an offer to settle on the other side and it's 50000 less than you're entitled to, but I'm going to charge you 100000 to run a trial, I yeah. might say to you, you know, you might be better off taking their offer um, at, the, at the lower number rather than paying me 100000 to end up with, you know, 50000 more. You're not going to net the same. So, um so it, the, the reality is that about 95% of cases settle without going to trial. I had a week trial scheduled for this very week that I'm sitting here, and we settled on Friday afternoon at 6 p.m. Um, so uh, with negotiations going back and forth, uh, sure. we finally put a deadline on our last offer on Friday afternoon at 4. We said if you don't accept it by 6, we're, we're going to proceed to trial, and they accepted our offer by 6 o'clock. So, so, and that happens in, in 95% of cases that people settle. I've actually, in my years of experience, I've settled on the courthouse doors at right outside the courtroom when we were about to go in at 10 o'clock in the morning, I've had the other lawyer pull me aside and make an offer that my client has accepted. So so people try to avoid trial and, and settle before trial because of the cost of a trial. If you want to get a hold of Stuart, I'll give you his website. It's www.zuckermanlaw.ca. You're listening to... Oh, Zuckerman. Oh, Zuc- so, oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, no C. I thought, what? What? It's not Dart C A. Yeah, no C in Zuckerman. Z U K E R Man Law Dot C A. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.